Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? Sir Angus Deaton, uh, the author of, or the co-author, should I say, of Deaths of Despair, written with a woman called Anne Case, who also happens to be your wife. Uh, Sir Angus, what's it like writing a book with your wife? It was wonderful, um, much to my surprise. You know, we, we started on this work, it was getting a lot of attention. We'd done a lot more work, it seemed like writing a book was a good idea, but we were both very hesitant. You know, we tried to work together when we were first married, we said it was not for us. Um, but this, you know, we were so passionately involved in this. But this isn't the first work you've, you've done with your wife. It's... No, I mean, but it's, it's, you know, through most of our careers, most of our marriage, we did not write papers together. You'll find odd ones here and there. Mm -hmm. um, but there was, there's never been a, like a sustained effort like this. And it, I think it happened because we came at it from different sides. I was working on suicide and happiness, and she was working on pain. She suffers from very, very, che very cheerful subject. Very she cheerful must have subject. a very happy marriage. And we, <laughs> but what we discovered is that uh, yeah, I, she was in a lot of pain. I was not thinking about committing suicide. Mm -hmm. um, but we discovered we were sort of pulling on the, on the same string or something, different ends of the same string. So when you won the, the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2015, did she dutifully show up and share your happiness? I think joyfully would be a better word than dutifully. Should she have, did she deserve any of that prize? They, they didn't write at all about any of my work on health, which is mostly yeah. work we've done together. So they, I don't know why, but there was nothing there about health at all. They wrote about most of the things I did, but not that at all. So, so your new book, written with, with Anne, is Deaths of Despair. It's a dark book. It has a, a, a kind of cheerful ending. We'll, we'll get to that later in the conversation. But it's a very dark book, Angus. What's it about? No, well, it's about the experience of a lot of Americans who are living in very dark times for them. And they're living in a world that is like less educated people in much of the rich world. It's under threat from globalization. It's under threat from technological change. Um, but somehow it's worse here. And so one of the puzzles of the book, maybe the central, we spend a lot of time in the book documenting these deaths, people killing themselves, people taking drugs, um, people dying from overindulgence in alcohol. Um, and also people suffering more and more pain. We document how that is happening for less skilled Americans. It's not really happening at all for more skilled Americans. And then we try to talk about the reasons why. And, why and it's, it's white Americans rather than black Americans. Until after 2013, um, there's been a big upsurge in black deaths too, which are mostly, I think, to do with fentanyl 
um, having got into the inner cities. But until 2013, there was very little sign of this in the African-American community. But what you could argue, and we do argue in the book, is that the African-American community saw this 40 or 50 years ago. And so, you know, if you're an anti-capitalist, what you'll say is that capitalism really doesn't need people at all. And it shedded, first shed the lowest skill, who were the black workers who'd come, migrated from the South, and now it's shedding the white, less educated people. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll be next. The book is, is marked by a very dark description, as you've suggested, of, of, of the suffering of this white middle class, uh, white working class or ex-working class, because many of them aren't working right. anymore, uh, as you say, of, 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 addi- of drug addiction, of alcoholism, of the breakup of family, of marriage, of early death, of the, 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 the lowering of, of, of life expectancy. Difference is this, and, and, and your vision is well. It's, it's not a dystopian vision because it's true. How different is this from the the the, the, the dark visions of capitalism, you know, from Marx and Dickens to uh, Huxley and Orwell? I'm not sure it is that different. Um, you know that I think capitalism left to rip um, without proper social control um, is a very dark for a lot of the people who are its victims. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, if it's properly controlled, it has enormous power. So it's like, you know, some rogue elephant that's charging in and trampling people and killing people. But, you know, if you get a hold of it properly, you can harness it and it can do a lot of things for a lot of people. So we need to harness that power. We need to make it work for people instead of having people working for it. One of the, the most troubling uh, aspects of this book is the the centrality you place in in in, in this suffering of the American healthcare system. You see this as the the, the kind of the first mover of the crisis. Um, I'm not sure it's the first. I mean, part of the first moving was certainly that pharmaceutical companies mm. preyed on these people. So it's not you know they were fertile fields for addiction, but the companies knew that and tried very hard to make sure they get addicted and made a lot of money out of it. So this is capitalism at its worst, you know, which I mean, it's beyond criminality. It's evil. Yeah, it's absolutely evil. I I would like to think I lived in a world in which evil and criminality were sort of aligned. Why why do we still hear so little about this? Well, we hear about the Bernie Madoffs and and the Jeffrey Epsteins. We're obsessed with Donald Trump. But why is this story still not that well known. Which, the deaths of despair or the drug deaths? The drug well, deaths they're all bound well up with known. one another. Yeah, the opioid thing. Well, but the, been... role, the role of the healthcare industry and the, the, the pharmaceutical industry in creating such terrible suffering. Well, there's, the direct thing I think is pretty well known. So pharma companies are widely hated, you know, by most people if over both opioids and over the cost of drugs. You know, and a poster child would be the, um, you know, insulin, which was invented in Canada 100 mm. years ago, was sold to the University of Toronto for $1 for each of the three inventors, mm. and now is unaffordable. Um, so, you know, the, the idea that you would allow to hijack a public good like that for the profits of a, of a small minority of very wealthy people is outrageous, and people know that. Mm. And 
you know, we have these surprise medical bills where private equity are buying up ambulances and, you know, hijacking unconscious people with sticking bills on them. Um, but there's a deeper part of it, which is, you know, we're used to being told that it costs so much. And I don't think that story is really out there. And that's the story we're pushing very hard from this book, which is that, you know, you can't spend, it's very easy to say, well, we spent all these trillions of dollars, we're wasting a trillions of dollars, but you know, dollars, everybody hears, you know, what did the Iraq war cost? It cost two trillion dollars, you know? And people just bandy these things around so they're meaningless, but they're not meaningless. What it does is it's ruining lives. And so one of the main reasons why, you know, firms don't hire low-skilled workers anymore is because what it costs for healthcare for them. I mean, we were drawing some pictures this morning, but if you look at the cost of a family policy, you know, that an employer would have to pay for an employee, it's now $20,000 on average, right? So if you're a janitor working for a firm, there's no way that adds up. You know, the firm is not gonna pay 20,000 extra dollars for a $30,000 worker, and nor can it reduce his wages to $10,000 because that would be below the minimum wage. So, <laughs> Those jobs are not there anymore. So you're suggesting that there is a, a profound contradiction between the market and healthcare. Yeah. They can't work together, at least in, their, in pure terms. In pure terms, yeah. I mean, there are obviously edges. I mean, most of us don't really care if cosmetic surgery is done by the market, for instance, or, um, you know, so there's margins around like that. I mean, more like what you have in Britain and you have more other countries where the state supplies most of what you need. And if you don't want to wait for your hip replacement, you know, you can get supplementary insurance and get it done a little quicker. So what you're buying there is business class rather than economy, but you're not changing your life expectancy through that. Haven't we been having this conversation, though, about healthcare? Maybe not quite as explicitly as, as, as we're having it today, but haven't we been having this same conversation for the last 25 years or even 50 years and nothing's changed? Well, things have changed. You know, the, for the last 50 years, life expectancy was increasing at about two years a decade. So now Do we credit the healthcare system with that, though? Some of it. Um, so a lot of it is people quitting smoking. So that's medical research if it's not actually, you know, so people like Dahl and Pito and things who did that in Britain um, deserve a lot of credit. And they're sort of within the broader um, system. But antihypertensives for instance, which, you know, I take a little pill every morning, which costs about two cents, um, and which keeps my blood pressure in con under control. You don't pay two cents, though, do you? No. Well, actually, I pay $10 for a thing. So it's sort of like what I do in Britain. Should someone like you be paying $100? Maybe. But I, I mean, yes, but it shouldn't be done that way. What you should be doing is you should have what's done in all other societies, which is you pay for it through your income tax. So effectively, you are paying more because I earn more and I would pay more towards the national health system, which I'm sure you do in Britain. But um, right now, because so much of it is done through employment, it's like a poll tax. Um, ask Mrs. Thatcher what poll taxes do to politicians. Mm -hmm. And maybe the poll tax here will, um, you know, this poll tax on workers. But again, they don't see it. You know, they don't understand that this healthcare is what's costing them their jobs. The, this, this new, perhaps we might call them underclass, this white underclass, do they have healthcare? Most of um, them, when they no longer have work? Um, well, uh, in various forms they do. So there's always the thing which a lot of people claim is, you know, by law, a hospital can't turn you away if you show up at the emergency room, right? So that's true 
hospitals try to shift you to some other hospital or they'll bribe the ambulances not to bring you to their hospital. Um, and you will probably never get a credit score again in your life because they'll hound you into the grave for what they think you owe them. So there's that sort of health care. There's also a lot more people covered under Obamacare, you know, who were not covered before. So a lot of these people are covered by Obamacare. Um, a lot of them, what is also happening, even people in work, is that these policies become much less generous. So they have very high deductible plans. I mean, everybody's trying to wriggle out from this burden that's been landed on top of them. But it's not just the 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 doctors and the, the insurance companies who are preying on this new class. No, it's everything. Uh, it's it's the manufacturers of, of fast food, uh, perhaps even um, car manufacturers. The whole cultural oh, architecture of American capitalism seems to be rigged against the, the, the class that you write about in your yeah, work. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm not ready to go there. You know? Um, no, because I, I think that you can make pretty good cases for these companies that you think are preying on us. I barely, I don't use Facebook, so I don't know whether Facebook is preying on me or at all. But, you know, I use Amazon a lot, and I'm very worried about Amazon. On the other hand, I get huge benefits from having well, What about the fast food companies or Coca-Cola? Well, I um, mean, those are bad. They're, they're producing stuff that, that makes you unhealthy and leads to an early death. Don't um, I don't think so. Um, or maybe they are, but I don't think it's a big effect compared with the things we're talking about here. Um, you know, because these people are being fed or they've been eating Coca-Cola for a very long time and their life expectancy is doing very nicely, thank you very much, and there are benefits on the other side. So I just say I'm, I'm not denying that there's a lot of unhealthy food around. I'm sure that's true. Um, on the other hand, to me, that's not the central problems that are happening right now. What about the role of education? Your book is um, about this new meritocratic chasm between the, 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 the achievers and the underachievers yep. and the disappearance of the middle class. You root... I never quite said that, but... Uh, well, <laughs> put it in your words then. Well, I don't know what the middle class is, but I think there's... Well, a there is a, sure. a, a disappearance of the economic middle, isn't there? Isn't that one of the things you're... Well, just... everybody in America thinks they're middle class, including Bill Gates, I have no doubt. But um, I think... But in a quantifiable sense. There's a quantifiable sense in that we have this very sharp distinction, which I don't think is true in Britain to the same extent, for example, of valorizing the four-year college degree. So right. that distinction has, seems to lead to green pastures as opposed to you know, the, the dark chasm. Um, and that, you know, it, there is more opportunity than there used to be. I mean, in the, you know, Princeton and Harvard and all these other places are trying very hard to get underserved kids. Though whether they serve these kids is something I'm not so sure about. I mean, they're very keen to serve people whose parents had never been to college before, but many of those are minorities. And so they've been very good at bringing minorities and people who were previously discriminated against at Princeton or Harvard into that. But I don't know how many of these kids come from, you know, white working class families. One of the very troubling things in, in your book is you, you, you make it clear that the elite, whatever you want to call them, the meritocratic class, are, are taking, in some ways, as, as many of these drugs, these opioids, and yet they're not dying from them. I don't think we know that. Did I say that? Well, you suggest that, that they are not, whilst they are using a lot of the, the same, uh, some of the same drugs, 
I mean, using of these. Uh, no, using is not the right yeah, word here, right? The right because word. They're, they're, they're given by their doctors. Yeah. But you're suggesting that, that, that they're not dying, that they're not part of your deaths of despair. Well, I mean, I, I think there's part of that is undoubtedly that Purdue formula, for instance, targeted people in West Virginia or people where industry had gone away as places that could, mm. you know, they could addict them and sell vast quantities of these opioids. So that's part of the story. And I, so I don't think they were prescribed to the same extent. But I think it's also true that doctors just made mistakes. And so if you'd had surgery in America or you had a wisdom tooth removed, you were sent home with a bottle of oxycodone. Uh, and that would not happen in Europe. So that was just a mistake. Right. And the reason I was asking that question is I was wondering what the role of education might be, not only in creating uh, these two Americas, but in, in, in helping people master um, yeah. master dangerous medicine. Or the system, mm. more generally. I think so. You know, I, always, I was always a bit skeptical about education and health until I had a hip replaced and I was in New York City Hospital in the middle of the night. And I woke up and I was doing well. You know, they'd taken out my IV and all the rest of it. And this mm. nurse appeared and she said, would you mind if I put your IVs back in? And I said, yes, I'd mind very, you know, I sort of woke up and said, yes, mm. I'd mind very much. And she said, well, your vital signs are showing bad things and we need to do this various stuff. So she then went away to get the equipment. Um, and I had time to wake up and think in a way that I think without my education, I would not have done. And so when she came back, I said, would you mind taking those readings again? And she took the readings, and I could see immediately that my supposition was correct, that she'd got the wrong patient. Wow. So, right. so her face fell, and she ran away with her cart and never reappeared. So, I mean, so I, beware, I, no, any nurses watching this, beware of, uh, of economists. Well, not just economists, but, you know, when I think of my parents who were so obedient within mm. the healthcare system, for instance, and I think that's a problem for us. So we should be less obedient, more critical. Well, we should all be better educated. You're not obedient. You're. Uh, I, not. I don't know. <laughs> well, your book isn't obedient because you're exposing what you see. And I think most people would would acknowledge is is a, is a huge problem with American capitalism, and then you're saying we need to fix this. It's not enough just to to see the problem. Yeah. There are fixes. So it's a dark book, but it ends on a note of optimism. How do we? How do we? Um, confront and fix this terrible social suffering in American capitalism today? With difficulty. The optimism, I think, was pretty qualified. I'm talking about, you know... I, well, you I, have the final chapter of the book is called... Um, the final chapter of the book is called... Actually, I think we put a lot of it in the preface. Um, right. You're hiding the... <laughs> hiding the... The, the final uh, is called um, what to do or something. Yeah, what yeah. to do. Yeah, but it's it's. Um, but you know what we say to do is you got to fix this healthcare system. We don't tell you how to do that, and you know we're saying. Well, it's more than the healthcare system. You you address all of many of the other problems of American capitalism. Well, I'm not as sure that you are, as you are, that all of these problems of American heart. You know, I, I take another Brit, uh, Michael Gove. I remember hearing mm -hmm. him speak. And he said, you know, 
look at America. You have Amazon, you have Facebook, you have Apple. We don't have any of these things in Europe. And that's why we've got to break with, with um, Europe. These European socialists are pulling us down and we not have the spirit of capitalism and so on. Mm. And, you know, I think that's probably completely wrong, but there's some truth to it. And, you know, most Americans are very pleased with the toys they get from those companies, right? Uh, you may say toys are nothing compared with mm. them killing you, but I don't think those are the companies that are killing you. Um, so for me, the highest priority is that we've got to, you know, and healthcare is not a trivial part of it. It's 20% of the economy, you know, and it should be 10% or 8% of the economy. So it's the reverse of Robin Hood. They're stealing from people. Isn't yeah. It? So we, we've got this huge kleptocracy in some sense that and capitalism doesn't have to work that way. I mean, it didn't work that way for most of the 20th century. Do you think we need a political party dedicated to the issue of healthcare? I don't know. Um, you know, one of the things that made me quite despondent and made a lot of us quite despondent was there's this surprise medical bill phenomenon in which it's actually run by private equity, which means some very wealthy people are borrowing a lot of money to buy up doctors and ambulances. They're taking them completely outside people's insurance systems. They, you get bills from these people even if you've never met them and you certainly had no chance to select them whatsoever. Mm. This is pure vulture you know, predatory uh, behavior. Something like 95% of Americans think this should be stopped as a high priority. There's no difference between Republicans and Democrats on this. There were three different schemes in Congress at the end of December. All of them got voted down. And instead, they voted to make billions of dollars in tax refunds to the healthcare industry. Right? Now, the people leading that were people on the left as much as on the right. And if you look at the people who took money from the private equity to oppose this bill, there are people like Donna Shalala. Right? Mm. And Donna Shalala and Mitch McConnell took equal sums of money from these guys to preserve it. Now, here's something that everybody hates, everybody thinks should be fixed, and Congress can't do it. Finally, you're, you're not just seeing the fix on health care. In, in the last part of the book, you have a section on antitrust. Yep. You have a section on wage policies, on rent seeking, on education. In fact, you end on education, lessons from other rich countries. Apart from health care, give me two or three priorities for addressing this terrible suffering in America today? Well, um, I don't know whether financing healthcare is different from healthcare. But, well, know, let's leave healthcare for the moment. Okay, but I mean, some of it is just it's coming out of people's wages and okay. a larger fraction, so it's regressive. So it's a, it's a reform of tax policy. Well, it's the reform of the way that the healthcare is funded yeah. so that, you know, that, that wouldn't be putting people out of work especially low-skilled people. We've talked a bit about education. I'm not an education expert. I've now written two books, and at each of both those books, I come to the conclusion that I need to know more about education than I do. But this monovalent um, prioritizing of going to a four-year college, I think we've got to break away from that. I think that's really, really important. So significant educational reform, rethinking, rethinking the very nature of what further education. education. Means. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's two things. Um, I, the third thing is antitrust, where I think, but I think that's in a state where it's an affirmant intellectually with people on both sides, and they're really good people thinking about that really hard, 
and we'll know more about that 10 years from now or five years from now. And then the subtitle of, of, of the book, Deaths of Despair, is the future, or is the, the, the full title is Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. Does capitalism have a future if we don't address these issues that, that you uncover in your book? Um, that's the risk, because I think markets, you know, let's not get into the definition of capitalism again, but markets are a tool for enormous social good. And if you let parts of it that are behaving badly make people so angry that they throw the whole thing overboard, then that would be a shame. Um, so yes or no, a future of capitalism? Yes, I think it does. It does have a future? Yeah, but it has to be fixed. And if we don't fix it? Then we'll get a revolution and we'll get more Trumps and more Orbans and, you know, more worse than Boris Johnson and maybe more Putins. Who knows? More Modis. The world is not a very good looking place right now. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast, it's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff, have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.